Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to live my life, putting purpose over profit. Too many fallen soldiers, too many slain prophets. Eyes on the prize, yeah, I gotta watch it. Agents amongst us, get your hand out my pocket. I'm sick with the pet. Brothers and sisters are sick in the pet. Oppressed by the man, attacked by the clan. America's plan, depression sets in. People becoming so hopeless. Said we can't breathe, they still choke us. They put the body cam on, it's either turn off or out of focus. Yeah, another death, another life. They pull the trigger, no thinking twice. Cops be wildin', the killing youth. The new Jim Crow, a different noose. It's the beast, it's the beast, mark of the beast. Cease and desist, increase the peace. Move in silence, don't make a sound. But when they come, stand your ground. R.I.P. to all the martyrs. Say your prayer, Heavenly Father. Black lives matter, black lives matter. Yeah. Yeah. Second installment of the Creative Gore Live. Yes. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm super excited, particularly with the things that we're talking about today, because um, we're going to get after some stuff. Um, and I appreciate the sponsorship, too. Sounds like a dope driving business, one that I would definitely support. Absolutely. And their link is in the description for anyone interested. And I actually have to give credit to the, the, the Brown Juice Barbershop who had an amazing episode that came out, was it yesterday? Yes, sir. It dropped yesterday at 12 p.m. Eastern. We usually drop uh, new sessions, new episodes on Mondays and Thursdays at 12 p.m. Eastern. Okay. Very cool. And the topic was, could you uh, give a little prelude here, Mix? Yeah. So Brown Juice Barbershop is a conversation between myself and my my co-barber, as I call him, um, Andre Robert Lee, and we have a, 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 a nice dynamic when we go back and forth and ask questions or have conversations like you would have at the barbershop, whether you're debating uh, current events, whether you're debating the uh, the newest fashion trends, things of that nature. But yesterday's show um, that was uh, really dedicated to thinking about what life will be like or what life could be like or what life should be like post-Verona. Yeah. So we came up with um, uh, some post-Rona um, commandments, you know what I mean? So um, one of those that was, I think, very important and one of the ones that you really responded to, uh, Josh, was the one that was, thou shall um, actually go and support Black-owned businesses without asking for a discount or a hookup. Yes. So that was one of the ones that was on there that I think uh, we had a good conversation about, um, got after it a little bit and really started to unpack it from different perspectives. Absolutely. And it was a great segue to the, you know, the ballot versus the bullet speech by Malcolm X. So thank you for giving me homework, Professor. That was a lot of fun to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, just thinking about and you see I'm wearing this shirt. Mm -hmm. um, shirt is uh, the American flag, but it has the colors red, black and green. Um, and the colors, if folks are familiar or not familiar with the red, black, and green flag, um, it, it was designed by Marcus Garvey. And if folks don't know much about Marcus Garvey, I would encourage you to do some research. Uh, when you think about uh, nationalism, black nationalism, when you think about um, being black owned, when you think about independence, 
uh, when you think about what it means to really unite and unify around a cause and have pride in oneself, one's culture. Um, he wanted to create a flag because there was a song that came out in the early 1900s um, that was really talking about everyone, every race worth its salt or every race, proud race has its own flag except uh, the C-O-O-N, except the coon. Right. Um, and he was like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. So created the red, black, and green flag, also known as the UNIA flag, known as black liberation flag, black national flag. There's a number of different names for it. Um, but that whole piece is that if anyone knows anything about Malcolm X and you think about um, his father, his father was um, a person who was a Garveyite, really followed the teachings of Marcus Garvey. You think about Malcolm X and how that really influenced a lot of his perspectives too moving forward about what it means to have black pride, self-love. And I'll get into some of his principles later on in our conversation. Um, but that whole ballad of the bullet speech, um, one that is one of his more, I guess, memorable speeches or one that people share often. Um, and it was really just, and it, I think it's great for our time period right now too, particularly for us being reflective. We're on the verge of an election coming up. Um, and we're seeing a lot of things that are happening right now during this moment in COVID-19, um, not only nationally, but globally. So when we think about political power that we have or do not have, when we think about political power that we can gain or cannot gain, uh, when we think about um, joining forces, whether that's in arms or locked in arms, um, when you think about unity and standing together, standing up against the establishment, the power structure, the government, whatever the case may be, I think that speech was really laying it out. We have the political process, which we can engage in and try to do that to the best of our ability, try to use our vote wisely, and then if the government does not adhere to that, when we're trying to play within the rules, when we're trying to the best of our ability, despite having a lot of things stacked against us in terms of laws, restrictions, et cetera, where we're trying to participate as Americans, even though we're not viewed as Americans in a lot of different ways, right? When we're trying to participate, use our voting power, and things still don't happen, then what's next? So it's like we either use the ballot or maybe we have to turn to the bullet, which means uprising, which means taking up arms, whatever the case may be. Um, a lot of folks often talk about Malcolm X being radical, radical, radical. And honestly, if you think about it, I would see it more so as being rational. Um, uh, uh, it's really about if we do this and we do this in the right, proper way within someone else's terms, then guess what? If you don't listen to that, which makes sense, was very rational, then that's when the radical part might come in. Absolutely. And the entire time I was listening to the speech, I was like, really? People think this was radical? He was just speaking facts. Quite plainly, just just very matter of fact. And I absolutely love the parallels of what was going on then. It was ahead of an election year and what's happening now ahead of an election year. In addition to him being able to compare what happened in, let's say, during the Holocaust. Right. So that was a human rights issue. You can't say it's a civil rights issue, which I thought was brilliant. It's a human rights issue and it violates, let's say, the U.N. treaty. And if you look at how, let's say, uh, let's say black Americans, African-Americans are treated ever since they've been in the country, I think that would violate a lot of U.N. treaties. You're absolutely right. Um, you're absolutely right. You, you think about. So let me just let me take a step back and just talk about um, why I am so, I guess, connected to Malcolm X. Uh, El Hajj, Malik Shabazz, right? Right. Um, and happy to be here on uh, on the Great of Gore with you about his, uh, you know, on his birthday. Um, and you know, so I was born in born in the Bronx, raised in Harlem, um, and you know, I lived between Seventh Avenue and, and Lenox Avenue. 
And for folks familiar with Harlem, Lenox Avenue is also Malcolm X Boulevard. So when I think about walking those streets, when I think about what it might have been like for him to be in those streets trying to galvanize the people in that city um, or in that part of the city of Manhattan, um, when I think about my life and my sisters, they were, um, they were a part of the Roof Williams Dance Company. And the headquarters for the dance company was actually in the Teresa Hotel. Wow. Which was where Malcolm X had his headquarters. It was also where he spent the night for one of the times when he was like trying to get away to get some work done. Um, I walked by Small's Paradise, the old Small's Paradise, which is now something else. Um, just thinking about growing up in that space. Um, that's why I think I'm so connected in that regard. And then this book right here that I was introduced to in seventh grade changed my life too. Yeah. Definitely changed my life. Changed my life and made me really think about myself, my identity. Um, think about my position in the world. Think about my position as a member of the United States, um, as an American or Afro-American or African-American or Black American, however you want, whatever verbiage you want to use. And I know there's some some things that people have different perspectives about that. But just thinking about myself and what is my responsibility, not only to myself and my immediate family, but if we drill down a little bit more so, what is my responsibility to people who look like me, people who come from similar communities, people who have similar struggles? Um, so I think that's when my consciousness really started to become awakened and I started to pour a little bit more so into it. So when we think about speeches such as his, which is very prophetic because these things are still happening right now. Absolutely. These things are still like, it, you can turn on the TV right now and like, oh, wow, are they talking about Lyndon B. Johnson or are they talking about this one that's actually about to come up? Um, yes. So, yeah, man. Absolutely. And it actually made me think about a question that I've always wanted to answer. Uh, I guess into perpetuity, which is how do we build Wakanda? Because the concept of that would essentially answer everything that Malcolm was posing. And I love his communication style because, again, just speaking pl facts plainly and he gives you no room to hide. You can't hide from the truth. This is fantastic. Exactly. And that's the piece because he was so, um, so unapologetically black so unapologetically truthful mm -hmm. of course of course after he made his pilgrimage to mecca his his whole notion of black nationalism what that looked like and his whole struggle for black liberation and what that looked like started to take a different shape where he's like there could be some other people involved in that particularly along his muslim background um but much of him was saying you know what uh we need to do for self and i wanted to share some of the things that uh came up in terms of some of his um his values that he often preached because when we think about how can we build a Wakanda? Uh, you know, there are some places in Africa right now that are pretty much a Wakanda in a lot of different ways, right. um, but still still subject to colonialism, imperialism, um, people coming in who are not in the culture, not from the continent, trying to abuse its resources, et cetera. Um, you think about those things. But uh, Malcolm, he preached five values, and he said unity amongst Blacks, self-knowledge, self-love, self-defense. Then he also talked about separation. Mm. And that piece of separation being that if we can't get what we want inside this integrationist system, um, then we need to be separate. That goes back to the whole uh, Marcus Garvey philosophy of being separatist, being a black nationalist, doing for yourself, producing for yourself. And, you know, people often say how that that's a, a negative or a dangerous mentality. But we also need to turn our attention to other cultures who practice a separatist place in a lot of different ways or at least cooperative economics to the point where it's a little bit more separate and they keep things to themselves. So there's always been pushback against that piece, but I, I, always, I always wonder why there's been pushback against that piece. 
it's very interesting because, and of course, this, let's say, uh, time in history stuck out towards me during the times of the Silk Road, when Asia was a very uh, prominent place for commerce. And they just decided to essentially segregate themselves from the rest of the world and become their own Wakanda. So they stopped trading with everyone. And of course, the imperialists and everyone else had, a, had an issue with that. And they were able to be self-sustaining. So I just thought it was very interesting that we, I, we have already seen this in our own history and it has been successful. Indeed, indeed. And um, thinking about going back to the whole post-Rona uh, commandments, right? When you think mm -hmm. about where you spend your dollar or how you spend your dollar, um, making sure that you spend your dollar in your community before it leaves the community. Um, there's a lot of pieces there because we don't have as much infrastructure um, or manufacturers or factories um, for us to do that in some cases. So it might be a little bit harder for us to do it, but it's not impossible. So it might take a little bit extra effort, but it's worth it. You think about million dollar industries such as hair care um, or you know beauty supply stores, et cetera. If you go to a certain neighborhood, um, inner cities, et cetera, whether it's Philadelphia, whether it's Newark, New Jersey, Trenton, whatever the case may be, are they black owned? That's just a rhetorical question. Um, <laughs> and if they're not black owned, who are the folks who own those? And do they do they treat you in a way that deserves your business? That's just a question. Do they pour back into your community the way that you pour into their business? That's just a question. So when we talk about the post-Rona commandments, when we talk about how we should be thinking about where we spend our dollar um, and how we practice cooperative economics, those are some of the things we should really be thinking about, just looking at our own spaces, how we navigate, realizing that it might be more difficult and harder to really support Black-owned businesses, but it's not impossible. It's definitely not impossible, especially when things happen like what happened to us while we were at the Petty School. When we went to the, I think it was the dollar store that was right next to Holy Wong in Heightstown. And for whatever reason, the, uh, let's say mm -hmm. the, the shop owners mm -hmm. had their young daughter follow us around wherever we go. And I, you know, I was looking at Mix. I was like, wait a minute, is she following us? And, you know, then the mischievous Josh came out. I was like, oh, let's go this way, see if she follows. And of course she did. And then unfortunately, we mm -hmm. were unable to, uh, visit there anymore and give any any more business. Absolutely. And, and, and that's the thing. Like, wouldn't it be beautiful if we all could support each other? If we all could support each, each other's interests? That would be beautiful, of course. However, when I'm thinking about um, that whole experience that you just explained, we were in the store and we were there before that store actually started to expand a little bit more so. And we were, we were patronizing that store um, for a number of different reasons. And they had a great market because they're right next to a boarding school where so many people are going to come and patronize them. Right. Um, so for us, and to, to be clear, it was like either two blacks or three black people, me, you, I think either Rick or somebody else. But we were all there and we start walking around, told her daughter to go follow us. We see that she's following us around. And you know what we did, right? We put all of the stuff that we were going to buy, put it on the counter and walked out. And that was the last time we were there because, again, we chose not to spend our money there anymore. Because even at the tender age of 16 or whatever <laughs> we were at that time, we knew that's not how we should be treated, particularly if we're spending our dollar. Absolutely. And I was like, wow, that was the first time that I actually felt racism in a prominent way. Because, you know, a little bit about Josh, for people who don't know, I've been in private institutions my entire life and I've never felt that type of racism before. 
So I've always been the, let's say, the micro minority in, mm. in all of these institutions, whether it be uh, the Jewish Community Center for kindergarten and preschool or for Newtown Friends School, a, a Quaker school from first grade to eighth grade. And then I didn't really feel that racism or that uh, that type of pressure, let's say, that social pressure until it was that instance right there. I was just like, wow. Mm. Mm. And, and, and it's difficult because sometimes when you think about the approach of Dr. King in the beginning, where it was really um, love for all mankind, mm -hmm. uh, even in the face of harsh brutality, even in the face of violence, even in the face of degradation, despair, and disrespect, um, let's try our best to love one another as Christ loved us. Um, and let's try our best to make sure that we're having a nonviolent approach. Right. Um, that's all great, particularly if other people are meeting us with that same energy. It becomes complicated when other folks aren't meeting us with that same energy. And I had to do a, a research paper back when I was in college. It was a class that I took that was on um, black leadership. Um, and I wrote a paper about black contemporary leaders. And then I read another paper about the difference between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And there's a book, it was based off a book um, by James um, H. Cohn, uh, which was called, or which is called, Martin and Malcolm in America, A Dream or a Nightmare. Mm. And if people study Martin Luther King Jr. as well as Malcolm X, you'll see that they're not very different. They right. had different spaces in their lives where they were like bookends. There were times where they were interlocked and there were times where they like, kind of like shifted into different perspectives. Um, one being where the other one started and the other being where the other one started. Um, so we look at their trajectory. It's almost like the rap game now. You take two of the hottest artists out. They try to pin them against each other. Like a Kendrick and a J. Cole. They're like, oh, go after each other. Go, go, go. And it's like, nah, we don't want that beef. But there's outside market forces and people who don't want to see the black community be united on any accounts. Where you try to take some of the best icons and leaders in their certain realm or sphere and say, oh, they hate each other. We almost saw the same thing when people were upset with the versus thing between... Erica Badu and Jill Scott because they're like, oh, they weren't caddy. They weren't getting after each other. No, it was pure love. And if you think about that, what 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 Malcolm and Martin really were preaching were radical love. Right. Radical love. However, the difference between Martin and Malcolm is Malcolm put black in front of that radical love. He was saying, I want black radical love. And another piece that was really interesting is that being in Philadelphia, um, there's a lot of Muslims, a lot of Muslim population here, a lot of mosques, et cetera. Same thing when I was in New York City. There's a number of different Muslims, a lot of mosques, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of people talk about how there was a large exodus from the church. And a lot of these Christians who were Christians converted to Islam. Wow. And the reason being is that generally, generally speaking, Christians tended to be integrationists. And Muslims generally tended to be black nationalists or separatists. Ah. And with that came a radical um, love for black people, a radical love for cooperative economics. Now, I'm not saying that was all Christian populations. I'm just saying that's the piece, particularly like around in the 60s, where you saw some people really wrestling with the fact whether or not I can really be nonviolent and continue to let this person who says they're a Christian too treat me with such disrespect. And they had to make a decision about what they wanted to do. Um, so that's another piece where things get conflated, but history has shown us, history has shown us, and I think Dr. Cornell West always talked about this. He said, Martin Luther King, the way that he celebrated on his holiday is that, you know, the thing that they always push out there is that I have a dream speech. Mm -hmm. They don't talk about his speech that he gave when he was talking about 
um, when he was striking with the sanitation workers, you know, right before he was assassinated. They don't talk about that. Um, they don't talk about all the things that he really did in terms of his um, his stance against uh, the Vietnam War. Right. They don't talk about that. Yep. But they really present, like Dr. Cornel West says, is that um, it's a sanitized and Santa Clausifies Malcolm X. I mean, not Malcolm X. Malcolm, Martin, okay. Absolutely. Um, so really thinking about how America treats black leaders, particularly those who have power. Right. So when you think about um, how the United States of America typically highlights the more docile, less rebellious counter hegemonic leaders. So a person like Malcolm X, who was just like, listen, y'all better listen to MLK, because if you don't listen to MLK and his methods, you're going to have to answer to me and my methods. And that's by any means. Because <laughs> you believe in self-defense. Right. I'm not turning the other cheek. I'm hitting you and yours. So just really thinking about those pieces and how they all lived with each other and helped each other. Um, just again, those two are some of the most um, prominent leaders that we've, we've ever seen. And I, I'm looking forward to the day where we have others who rise up like him. But 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 Malcolm was a special, special human being. And, you know, just celebrating him today is something that's important. It's true. And of course, while listening to the fantastic speech, it got me thinking like, OK, how can we implement these these philosophies and concepts today? Because what he said was absolutely right. How can we as black people have the audacity to complain if we're not even doing things to help ourselves? So I, I think you, you and I both have an issue with people who identify with being the victim, but don't do anything to get that, let's say, get that uh, label off of their back. Like, what are you doing proactively to make sure that you can rise above oppression? Because if you just let it happen and then you identify with being the victim, then nothing's ever going to change. Oh, for sure. And I know there's sometimes where folks might feel like they are uh, victims. There are times where folks might feel like they've done all they can and they can't do anymore. There are some folks who don't know themselves enough, don't know the history enough. They don't love themselves enough to know that they have everything that they need uh, to fight for liberation in one way, shape or form. Um, and there's some folks who are a victim of uh, falling into a state of learned helplessness mm. where it's just like, you know what, I'm just going to sit down and do nothing because I, I just I can't deal. I can't do it. Um, and, you know, I don't blame some folks who have that, that, that feeling because the world sends us many messages on a daily basis about who we are or what we can do or what we can't do, what we should do or what we shouldn't do. Because as we talked last time, what happens to our leaders? What happens to the ones who are bold enough to speak out against establishment and rally people together? There was a reason why COINTELPRO was uh, invented, mm -hmm. right? Prevent the rise of a black messiah. They had wiretapping MLK, wiretapping Malcolm X, wiretapping the Black Panthers, assassinating and killing and murdering. And that's from the highest level of the land. Right. right? That's that's from the FBI. Right. That's 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 from um, the, the, the White House. Right. So you have all these opportunities where we can rise up. But then again, the question always becomes at what cost? Is it, am I willing to give up my life? Am I willing to give up my career, my job, my family? What am I willing to sacrifice? But those are the questions that we always have to ask. And Malcolm X said it pretty much. Um, I shared a story today. He's like, the, the, the cost of freedom is death mm. in one way, shape, or form. That's the price. That's the price. And, you know, whether it's something in your life has to go, whether it's some, some organization has to go, whether it's some regime or some establishment has to go. Um, but what does, what does liberation really look like and how do we attain it? 
It's true. And I guess one of the main things I think about is, as you were saying, if we have these charismatic, eloquent leaders who are great communicators and can communicate facts in a simple way that everyone can understand and, again, can't ignore the facts. And then if they if they are if they do become martyrs and then I'm thinking from everyone else's viewpoint, because obviously that's done to deter other people from following their lead because at the end of the day who wants to pick up that mantle if it's drowning in blood and injustice Mm, that's that's very true and i think what we also have to be careful about and i love i love some of these celebrities that we always um celebrate um but we have to be careful not to fall into that mentality that those people who are famous whether they're entertainers such as professional athletes rappers, um, famous people who are acting, whatever the case may be. We have to be careful not to fall into the space of saying those are our leaders. Mm. First and foremost, when we talk about who are our leaders, we know that us, even as black people with similar experiences, are not a monolith. We know that we have different perspectives, different walks of life, different religions, creeds, etc. We understand that. But when you talk about what it means to have basic human needs, to survive, uh, to actually gain access to the quote-unquote uh, American dream, right? Right. There are some people who have access to that. There are some people who do not, and they're living in an American nightmare. Um, I would encourage people, if you have the opportunity, there's a board game called the American Dream Game. It's by Point Made Learning. Hmm. That's Point Made Learning. Um, and Andre Lee, uh, my co-barber, he's a part of that. Um, and I would I would encourage you to play that game. There's an online version which will come in handy now during the Rona, you know what I mean? But there's also a board game that you can cop and play with your family. Um, there's also a life-size game, oh. but it really shows the different perspectives of how this American dream that we, that people have been saying that if you just do this, you just do that. If you just pull yourself by your own, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, realizing that some folks don't have straps, let alone boots, right? We can't get to that space that you keep saying is the Holy Grail. We can't get to the promised land because there's so many barriers that hinder us from doing that. So when we're thinking about what that looks like, when we think about how do we organize, when we think about whether it's the ballot or the bullet or both, we have to think about um, the consequences. And sometimes those consequences might tell people not to do the things that we need to do in order to get liberation. Or you might have some folks who come along and there's a generation that says, no, we're going to outnumber them. We're going to outsmart them. We're going to play by their rules and play outside of their rules to get the best of what we need in terms of liberation. It's true. And I keep thinking about Malcolm's quote in this amazing speech of talking about how the government has failed us. But when we think about it today, how many of us are literally hanging on because of the government, even right now with the possible second stimulus check, whether that be you know, via welfare, because I work at a welfare agency in, in New Jersey. So it's just one of those things that you really have to, as you were saying time and time again, as the innovative educator, you really have to educate people how to become independent of the system. And thus, then you can go back and work within the system to prosperity. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because my question is this. Um, where did all this money come from in the first place? Did it just appear? Was it just printed yesterday? Thank you. Um, was it was it was it not possible for these um, stimulus checks to be sent out and given way before this actually happened to those who needed it before this happened? I just have questions. When you think about um, 
the PPP loans, right? Mm-hmm. You think about all these people who are manipulating things. You think about the people who are, and even some of the foolish folks, like that dude from Love and Hip Hop or whatever, who got like a million dollar PPP loan and spent $40,000 on like back payment and child support, like paid off a wraith and like, like all this like nonsense, right? Wow. So when you think about misappropriation of funds, when you think about the fact that there were funds that were presented to us during this time, that could have been, should have been presented to people who needed it before in other way, shape or form, whether it was welfare, whether it's reparations, whether it's a stimulus, whatever you want to call it. I just have a question about why things happen when they happen and why certain organizations, even some, some organizations such as, uh, I think, professional sports teams were applying for it because they're loopholes, right? Just like tax games, mm-hmm. right? They're loopholes. So when we talk about a capitalistic society, we have to call a spade a spade when people are just trying to make green. That's money over morals all day. So we have to think about that. In a place that prioritizes money over morals, how do we fight the fight for liberation? Is it a moral one or is it a monetary one? Or maybe it's neither. I don't know what it is, but those are the questions that I have. And they're great questions because if you're a you know multi-million dollar and or billion dollar entity and you're you know essentially playing the game and finding loopholes of putting employees on furlough so you get more money... And then we all know how economics works. Where, like you said, where are they going to get the money from? We're going to be ended up paying for it eventually because we all know that they're not going to raise the taxes for the wealthy and the rich, especially with the current president in office. That's just that's just not going to happen. And then when we talk about voting, first day, mm-hmm. you say that your vote might count. Even if folks like we've seen the history, right? We know about the electoral college and how it functions. We understand that when there's too much people who have a black vote in a particular district, that gerrymandering takes place and they re-outline the districts so they can swing votes, et cetera. So there's always a hand in place. So there are times that we have to be politically strategic or as Malcolm X was calling for in the ballot or the bullet, we need to be politically mature. There's a lot of times where we're politically immature or we just say, you know what, we're not going to participate in the game at all. And that's, that's everyone's prerogative. All I know is that we have to be very much informed about how we use our vote if we use it, um, and we also have to think about after we use our vote, what do we do? You can't just do one and say, hey, everything's going to be great. You have to hold folks accountable. And there's ways to do that before you even cast a vote. And the problem is that sometimes we just cast a vote. We don't make people earn it. We just cast a vote, whether it's just voting along party lines mm-hmm. or maybe because someone reminds them of who they are, what they want to be, but not actually being politically mature enough to do the digging, to understand what a vote for this person means not just in terms of their office, but what powers do they have once they get in office? Are they able to appoint the chief of police? Are they able to appoint their deputy commissioner? Whatever the case may be, we need to think about these things if we're going to participate. We can't just participate blindly and without any information. It's true. And it goes back to your brilliant point of education. And I feel like we really have to educate the youth about the concept of you know, economic power because black people alone will have at least what 3.9, if not 4 trillion in economic power. And if you actually describe that concept to a child in a way that they could understand their entire life perception would change completely. And, and it's funny that you mentioned that because it, it reminds me of the conversation we were having last time. And like I said, I'm in education and Malcolm was talking about separatism. Like being separate, not integrationist. Even um, even Martin Luther King was like, you know, I'm afraid that I might have integrated my people into a burning house. Right. 
thinking about that, right? So when you have a person like Malcolm who is calling for being separate, to be real, to be real, real, like honestly, being on quarantine, I've been separate from a lot of institutions that don't look like me. I've been separate from a lot of spaces that don't necessarily reflect who I am. And it kind of feels good. <laughs> and it kind of feels good, which means, which really means that we have to re-examine. Are we in these spaces because we don't have access to other spaces? Are we in these spaces because we refuse to build our own spaces? Or are we in these spaces because we're too afraid to step out and do for self? Because all we know, all we've been, all we've been preconditioned to do is to actually rely on someone else. So instead of begging for a job or having to exist, exist in a space that doesn't reflect or represent you, doesn't welcome you or a place where you feel a, a true sense of belonging, how do we build our own place where we can welcome ourselves, our ideologies, our aesthetic, and actually do what we need to do to not only feel free, but be free? It's true. And I keep thinking about the Chappelle, you know, Chappelle show skit of the reparations. Like, are, if that happens, are we just going to give the money right back to everyone else? Or are we going to build our own Louis, Gucci's and whatnot and build it from the ashes? I think, you know, Jeff has a great question. Where does that self-education start? I feel like it starts at home because I feel like the biggest victim and the oppression against black people worldwide, but specifically in our country, is by breaking up the black family. And we all know that men and women need to be in the house at the same time in order for children to have the best chance of success in this world. And for sure, I, I, I agree with everything you just said. And also, um, to answer uh, Jeff's question, um, there's some people out there right now that I would point individuals to. So I went to Cornell University, and while I was working at the Johnson School um, the graduate school of business. Um, I came across this this dude who's my uh, fraternity brother as well. I'm five fraternity incorporated. Shout out. His name is Lawrence Watkins, um, and you might know that last name Watkins. His brother is Dr. Boyce Watkins. Oh, okay. Right? Dr. Boyce Watkins has uh, the Black Business School, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe um, Lawrence is uh, either running it or he's either the, I don't think he's either president or something. Um, but I would I would direct people to go to the Black uh, business school. I will also uh, I will also tell them to take a look at Financial Juneteenth, which mm. is another publication that they put out. And I believe they also have a Black homeschooling network. Um, additionally, I would also say that Dr. Umar Johnson has some great uh, materials for those who are trying to homeschool uh, and also Black parent associations. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities for folks to get involved. I think we also need to get back to homeschooling our own children in some ways. You can send them to the regular school, um, but in some cases, you need to know what they're what they're learning, um, have conversations with them when they get back, because you might have to do some decolonizing and detox once they get back. Uh, I think you should also yeah. pick up pick up some uh, or start again some book clubs where we read books together, where we have conversations, where we all are informed and pour into one another. Um, and I think we need to start to get back to our own media. So there's different radio stations. Yeah, it's cool to vibe out the Hot 97 um, or Power 1051 or whatever, right? But there are also some other things like the Word Network. Um, where you can listen to some people talk about the black stuff that's happening right now. And I use that term generally. Um, so when we talk about um, where do we start, part of it is in our own homes. Like I said, I have my, I curated my own black power bookshelf. Um, all the books that probably would be on a restricted list somewhere, <laughs> I got them. 
and I'm putting them on there and I'm reading through them day after day. <laughs> and I'm arming myself with some information that people have been trying to keep from us. Um, and even certain things. So, for example, I was reading the, I was reading the Battle of the Bullet speech. Right. Mm-hmm. I was reading it in a book and it was edited. Then I went to go listen to the speech. Totally different, fam. How about totally that? Totally different. Totally different because there's pieces that they take out. And I'm like, mm, I have questions about why you took that piece out. So you can't read certain things that are edited. Try to find the original transcript of stuff too. Um, so it's really about digging deep and taking that extra uh, that, that extra place for knowledge. There's so many places that we need to go to, whether it's museums, whether it's the Schomburg Center um, in Harlem, where I'm from. There's so many things that we can do and we need to do. Um, and you know, I think also us each each of us, whether we want to start a blog, podcast, what we're doing right now, I think we have to continue to do this because we have the platforms that are available. Let's not let it go to waste and let other people take advantage of these platforms and spew all the information they want to spew. Let's get out there, too. Absolutely. There's definitely a ton of editorializing. It kind of reminds me of how the uh, books of the Bible were chosen. Right. They were chosen to keep people in a certain, let's say, mindset. And but when you go back and look at, let's say, the original text, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and a lot of them are referenced in the Bible as like fact, like it's like referencing the uh, thesaurus or an, an almanac. So it was already, you know, looked at as something, you know, very prominent. And you see how things are strategically cut out. But then I also have to go back to, to Dean's point about it's all about educating, you know, the children. And specifically, I think I've already made the choice preemptively that I'm certainly going to homeschool my children probably into the age of petty, most likely. Mm. And I respect you for that. And I am available for guest lecturing and cultural explorations. Oh, yeah. Just let a brother know. Absolutely. You just let a brother know. Because that's very important. I mean, just understanding the value of a dollar, just understanding, not just giving an allowance, but explaining to them what this money is like. And hey, if you get five dollars and come Friday, you have one left. I'm, give, I'm, I'm going to applaud you because guess what? You spent less than a dollar a day. Yeah. You spent less than a dollar a day. So like, like we start thinking about men, like managing money. When you start thinking about these things, all the stuff they don't teach us in school, like, and, and that's across the board. They don't teach finance like that anymore. They don't. Um, they don't teach these things in terms of how to, like how to file taxes. They don't teach you how you can uh, buy a house unless you want to get into real estate. Right. There's so many practical things that we use more so than the uh, periodic table in certain spaces. If you're not going to be a medicine or a chemist um, or then the quadratic formula. Mm-hmm. What's the last what's the last time you used a quadratic formula, Josh? Oh, since uh, <laughs> I first heard of the quadratic formula <laughs> four score, so four score and class, 10 years ago. <laughs> instead of teaching that in math class, how about you teach me how to balance a checkbook? Exactly. Or work an Excel spreadsheet. Give me something. It's true. And I was, as an adult, learning about the concept of compound interest. I was like, where was this? Because things like that would actually get me interested in math. Talk about it. And even with interest, like, think about that. Sometimes we try to do the best that we can with the best of what we know. Mm -hmm. So you might try to save money. So you open up a savings account. But you didn't do your research about all the different types of savings accounts. You didn't know that there's a high yield entrance savings account. So don't put your money in that savings account. That's not going to give you any type of interest. Put it in high yield interest account. Sometimes we get so attached to brands. Yes. Like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to bank with Bank of America because it's great. 
Uh, have you dealt with the customer service? There's a number of different things that you have to think about, right? But really, at the end of the day, read the fine print. I know me. I'm the quickest one to be like, nah, I'm good. I got to sign up anyway. But mm-hmm. no, read the fine print. Really do your research. Check all the options that you have available. And in some cases, you have to you have to see what the white folk doing because they've been hip to the game since they brought us here. Absolutely. I mean, they created the system that has the loopholes. Mm-hmm. So... I had to ask you a question because this is where I see us progressing, but then also coming back to where we are now again, because you brought up a great point with entertainment. So I'm thinking about the gentleman who used to own BET, but then Mm -hmm. sold it. So imagine if we do have all these black businesses and media companies and whatnot based upon our talent and skill sets. And yet at a certain point, They get offered an astronomical amount of money and it actually is good business. Well, like how, how do we, I guess, how do we deal with that? My question is this. Sometimes what's good for business Mm -hmm. is not good for the block. Right. So it could be good for business, but are you selling your soul and selling your people while you're selling your soul? It could be good for business. What is it good for the community that has poured so much into you in order for you to make that business move, right? Right. So when we think about people who have positions of power, and I wrote this in my paper, I was looking through it earlier today, and I was like, oh, I was kind of deep back in college. <laughs> it didn't just happen overnight. This is progression. It was a progression. Are you going to um, upload it to Thinking Gourd at all, just so people could read? I might. I might. Uh-huh. I, have to take, I have to think about it. You know, there, there's something I'm not too proud of, like, you know, some punctuations that wasn't good. And I don't feel like <laughs> we're doing it. But, but no, we'll think about it. We'll think about it. Um, but what I wrote was black leaders are often manipulated, mm. stifled, imprisoned and socially lynched. Yes. And these days you could take out that socially part in front of lynch. Yes. It just looks differently. It's done differently. Whether it's police brutality or whether it's just white malicious or whatever the case would be. So when you think about these people who have these power, uh, who have power, um, who have consumer market share, mm-hmm. and you know, again, a capitalistic society, the rules are written for a certain space. So how do we as consumers, if we're not producers, if we're not owners, how do we as consumers dictate and mandate that the folks who are getting all this money to actually, you know, make these business moves where they can just like essentially sell out the entire community for their own gain, how do we make sure that we prevent that from happening? And sometimes it's boycotting, sometimes it's actually making demands, um, sometimes it's, uh, you know, really trying to get in the room and shake things up from the inside um, while working at it from the outside. There's a number of different strategies, but we have to think about sticking to something. It's true. And I guess my biggest reservation is what's going to happen when other races actually have a problem with what we're doing even more so and then that and then they'll try to do what they let's say do what they're doing now just try to prevent things from happening whether it's you know burning down churches or whatnot and things of that nature but here's real rap real rap is this if we were playing a game of poker like mm-hmm. if, the, if, the, if, the, if the struggle for liberation or the game of liberation was poker and the white establishment, hegemonic culture, white supremacy structure, had a hand, they already showed it. Yeah. They already showed it. We know exactly which card they're going to play. So it shouldn't come as a surprise. Like you either end the game or not, put your chips in. <laughs> like that's what it is. Like, yeah. 
don't check, don't pat, like, put your chips in and let's play because you they've already showed their hand. So we already know that whenever we try to gain any type of power, what's going to happen? For every one of our actions in the right direction is going to be a reaction. When you think about laws, when you think about actual breaking of the law, which they're usually actually not found guilty of, um, these things have been happening since we got here, since we were stolen Africans and brought here, right? These things have been happening. There's nothing new under the sun. So if we're afraid of anything, we're going to be afraid for the rest of our lives because we saw everything in their playbook. We already know. So what are we going to be like? You know what? Whatever. We're going to make sure we push forward. Yeah, that's definitely the goal is to just no matter what, just go after it. I mean, I feel like it's worth the risk, to be honest, um, because I feel like the the reward is going to be so incredibly sweet. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine by, let's say, in the next five to 10 years, there are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of black new black millionaires. I think that would be that would be a lot of fun. I have a question, and I, I, I wonder. I wonder what your your perspective is, and I wonder what people in the comments' perspective is. Nice. Do you think that our ancestors who are looking down right now mm. are proud of us? Do you think they're proud of us? Do you think they're proud of the progress we have made or have not made? With the, it's almost like running a race, right? You got Usain Bolt not running anchor, but he's running the first leg. Right. Have we given up that lead? Have we stopped running? Did someone pull a hamstring? Someone dropped a baton? Mm. Like, are our ancestors proud of us in the in the leg of the race that we're running? That's my question. That's a great question. And I could even answer that some of us have been uh, paid to fix the race and lose it on purpose. And it, like you said, selling, selling your soul for, for profit. So honestly, I, I think about the... Well, this this topic had me think about two specific uh, boondocks moments, of course. Number one is when Martin Luther King came back. Yes. And he he told black people how he felt about them. So I would assume that he it would be something like that to answer your question. But then I also look at things like, you know, nigga moments. Right. Mm -hmm. And how. So I look at how other let's say other places in the world, but more specifically in our country, if we're not going to stop killing our own selves over certain things just because of, let's say, emotional issues and whatnot and not being balanced. I mean, how can we, you know, to me, how can we succeed if we're cutting ourselves down? Because we already know, like you said, we already know the playbook. We already know that certain police officers are going to do what they're going to do in certain areas of the country. However, if you, like if you're going to be upset about police brutality, but then you're going to, you know, ride for your set and all this. I mean, what's to me like? What's the point if you go, if you just gonna do that? You're absolutely right, and I and and don't get me wrong. I understand why violence happens. Mm -hmm. I understand why gangs exist. Mm -hmm. I understand. I, I, I honestly, I took a class called Drugs and Gangs. I grew up in Harlem, pre-gentrified, right? So I, I know all these things. I get it. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about Malcolm X and honoring his legacy and a lot of what he stood for, again, I come back to it: black, radical love and to be clear again black radical love does not mean anti-white right black radical love simply means pro-black so i go back to that which means that if you love 
And again, let's go back to let's go back to Malcolm's five things that he preached: unity amongst blacks, self-knowledge. If you know yourself, then you can get to love yourself, which is the next one: self-love. Self-love means what? You love yourself, which means if you love yourself, you probably won't harm yourself. Right. right? And then self-defense. That means that if you're going to defend the black person, why would you hurt the black person? Right. And then in separate separation, sometimes when we have black on black issues, we need to separate from ourselves and let cooler heads prevail. But I understand there's a lot of things. There's a lot of a lot of things like we've been put into a pressure cooker. Right. Yeah. We've been put into a pressure cooker and they expect us to thrive. We always talk about crabs in the barrel. Right. We've been thrown into a pressure cooker and they turn that bad boy all the way up. Each year like, it gets hotter. I hope things don't pop. Mm-hmm. I hope they don't pop. And then when they pop, they're like, I told you. I told you. They're good for nothing. So when we think about that, what does it mean to truly have a knowledge of self in order for us to truly love ourselves, in order for us to really truly defend ourselves, which means not harming each other, right? And having some type of unity for us to move forward as a collective. One of the other things that, uh, that Malcolm X said, and he was talking about as a Muslim, he was like, you know what? Everybody's religion should be their own personal ideology, identity that they keep in the closet to themselves. Sacred, yes. And I and I understand his piece. Some people might be like, no, I gotta, I gotta go out there, good conference, etc. And and there's room and space for that too. We need to be, particularly if you want to, uh, if you want to be an evangelicist and you want to do all those things, that's great. But I think what his point was is that sometimes, particularly when we get to identity politics, when we talk about a person's religion, a person's race, ethnicity. Um, their age, their sexual orientation, whatever you want to call it, right? When we get to all these pieces, we start to divide ourselves in different camps as opposed to uniting ourselves. So you have to ask yourself, when we talk about all these identity politics, is it good or is it bad? Realizing that you can still identify with all those things, but are you going to have a strong united front as it pertains to black love, black radical love, as it pertains to cooperative economics? As it, as it pertains to the struggle and fight for liberation, mm-hmm. being acknowledged as a human before we can even gain human rights. Like, does, does, like when is all that going to come to the to, to, to fruition? Because sometimes we get caught up in the minutia of nonsense that have nothing to do with anything except continue to divide and conquer us. And that's been the strategy since day one. Again, that's the hand they show. Absolutely. Divide and conquer based upon emotional aspects. So instead of, like you said, cooler heads prevailing, they're going to make sure they, they twist the knife and something that they know for sure you're going to react to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we are a prideful people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes our pride gets the best of us. Um, and sometimes because we're unable to flex on the establishment or unwilling to flex on the establishment, we flex on each other. Right. And that's a problem. So again, we need to examine that and have a truer conversation with ourselves and really think about what are the next steps? How do we go on a journey to self-actualization, self-awareness, self-love, gain some consciousness, self-defense? How do we do it? It's true. And I think it starts with self, right? You, we have to increase each other's self-esteem. Because being, let's say, that sensitive, and we understand why you're sensitive. We're not saying you're, you're human. We get it. We understand these are real things. We're not saying it's invalid. But we need more macro thinking as opposed to just 
in the moment. And we talked about it last time. That was one of our sound bites, just being in this instant society and not thinking about things long term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, 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 and we have to realize that life, uh, when I was in college counseling, I used to tell students this all the time. I'm like, right now, from junior year to your senior year, as you apply to college, it's going to be both a marathon and a sprint. Mm-hmm. If we understand that that is what life is, both a marathon and a sprint, we'll be well positioned for a race that we're one well aware of, and we realize that we have to run our leg of the race as fast as 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 fast as we can for as long as we can. Right. Tomorrow's not promised to anybody. So, and that's where the pride comes in again. Some of us think we're going to live forever, regardless of what we see on TV. It reminds me of uh, Riley from the Boondocks. First of all, I'm going to live forever. <laughs> like, we think these things, right? Yeah. So how do we make sure that we don't let a single day go wasted? How do we make sure that every day we're making an impact in someone's life, whether it's our own or someone else's? Like, how do we make sure that at the end of the day, and I was sharing this on the Brown Juice Barbershop, I'm like, at the end of the day, I just want to be relevant. I want to make sure that I ran my, my leg of the race as fast as I could, for as long as I could, and I put someone running behind me who's going to run after me in a better position. I gave them an extra 10 seconds or whatever, but I'm just thinking about that, and I think that's where we should be. It's true, and I feel like, to your previous question, our ancestors might have been possibly lapping <laughs> the, the competition, and unfortunately, the, the bear got on everyone's shoulders around, around the corner, and just to use, you know, like a track terminology, but at the same time, I would have to go back to Malcolm's speech and I'll just, I wrote down one of my favorite quotes that I think illustrates the point that you're talking about. Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior. And then you go into some action. And the reality is people will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars just to hear that from someone more successful than them, yet they already know the answer. The answer is usually within yourself already. That's the God within all of us, not in that, let's say, Kanye way, but in terms of a united like self-love and like in, in terms of like that. So there, there is a lot of power within, but if you don't know that power is there, if you're raised in, a, like you said, a hegemonic society with that that says that you're less than and your ancestor used to not even used to be a whole citizen. So, so what are you? And you see what the police are doing to you. Look at what your own people are doing to you. Surely you're not worth that much. And that, and over time that becomes your reality. And unfortunately our brain is an amazing vessel, but it can also get used to things like that. It's, uh, you're absolutely right. And it reminds me, that reminds me of Frederick Douglass's quote when he said, um, it is better to build up children mm. than to repair broken men. Thank you. And right now we got a lot of broken men out here. We got a lot of broken women. Um, we got a lot of broken things. And if we can get back to basics, so the folks who don't have children yet, who are, are planning on having kids, keep that in mind and take that to heart. Build up strong children so you won't have to repair broken men, right? Um, and those folks who have children right now, keep that in mind in terms of what you're doing on a daily basis to instill this type of wisdom and knowledge into your child, because we can't just send them to school, mm-hmm. right? When you think about things, again, that political maturity, that political maturity, there's a lot of folks who are politically immature. They don't realize that everything we do in life is political. Where you choose to shop, 
what you choose to eat and put into your body, where you choose to spend your dollars, where you choose to send your child to school, who you choose to marry. Right. All these things are political. So the minute we can actually get back to that and think about that and not just do it as, oh, I'm going with the flow, right? We need to actually really be intentional about the things that we do and understand the implications of each choice that we make. And it's intentional, um, like the impact that might happen um, with every decision that we make. So those are things that we really need to be mindful of and think about as we move forward. Absolutely. So if you don't mind me asking, what was your favorite part of Malcolm's speech? I really, I really like a couple of things. One, he mentioned that he does not identify with any political party. Mm, I love that part. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. He was talking about how Democrats are really Dixiecrats. If you vote for a Democrat, you're really voting for a Dixiecrat. He was saying that as a matter of fact, I'm not even an American. Mm. They told me I'm an American. I'm not even an American. And people call, keep talking about I'm a, I'm a second class citizen. No, second class citizen, you're not a citizen. Right. That's just 20, that's 20th century slavery. So when he's talking about all those pieces, about how sometimes we, again, divide and conquer, identity politics, you do realize that if you are registered as a Republican, you can still vote for a Democrat. Right. You do realize if you're registered as a Democrat, you can still vote for a Republican. So like, we're, like why are we, and if, if you're a third party, Green Party, you can vote for whomever you want to vote for. And, and why are you so beholden to certain spaces? You can, you can, you can identify with whatever part, whether you're more conservative, et cetera. But what is your independent thought? What is your independent thought about each candidate? Like if we, if we imagine if we did politics and voting like the voice. Oh my gosh. You got your back turned and someone just starts talking. You don't know who they are, right? You don't know what their affiliation is. It's blind voting in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I'm gonna vote for that person because I really, I, I like, they gave me the plan, et cetera, blah, blah. Imagine that. So if we, if we removed parties and actually had people in platforms, I wonder what that would look like. But again, everything is a game. Everything's systematized. Everything is in place for a reason. Things that are allowed to continue are in place for a reason and are at the best interest of big government as opposed to everyday people like me and you. Absolutely. I just keep thinking about the the analogy of the cosmic chessboard. So everything is, like you said, structured for a specific outcome. Everything is strategy at the end of the day and if you can see the whole board if you own the whole board it's a lot easier to implement that strategy especially if other people aren't even aware that they're on the board that they're able to play as well and that they're even pieces for the larger game you're absolutely right and i think there's plenty of times where people just so quickly so quickly just jump behind a particular party Um, and because of that they jump behind a particular person who's representing that party, even though they might not be representing their best interests. Somebody who you might not have voted for um, along those party lines might have something that's good for you. And somebody who is in your party also might have something that's good for you, or they might not. So all I'm calling for is for people to be a little bit more conscious, to be a little bit more politically mature, to really actually do research as opposed to just voting based off of identity in the sense of that person looks like me, that person sounds like me, that person's a Democrat, that person's a Republican, like you need to dig a little deeper. And then at the end of the day, my personal perspective, no, no one man can save us. Now, if we're talking about Jesus, that's a different story. Right. But no one man can save us. So when we talk about this voting and we talk about all these policies and all this, like there are things that we need to do. 
that will help us while we're here on this earth. However, I don't put my faith in any one person to save us, whether it's the president of the United States, whether it's the Pope, I don't care. I don't, that's just not how I live my life. But I'm not, I'm also not going to be a fool and think that I could just sit there and not, uh, you know, really be mindful and keep my finger on the pulse of things. Um, I think, again, another quote from Frederick Douglass. He talked about how he used to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And he realized that he was always praying on his knees. And he said, but the minute that he got up off his knees and started praying with his feet, that's when things started to happen. So, again, faith without works is dead. Right. So pray, but also take some action. Pray and do something. It's true. We we have to take action or else it's not going to get done because we already know no one else is going to do it. And I feel like collectively as black people, we have this savior complex like, OK, we'll just we'll we'll let go and let God and wait for Jesus to come back and then Jesus will save us. But we all know in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. So you, you still you have to put some sweat equity in there. Number one. Number two, you have to be a conscious individual. Just like how we all know, if you eat terribly and you don't exercise long term, that's not going to be the best lifestyle for your optimal health. We all know that we have to take care of ourselves, have self-care, have some healing. But we also know that, okay, sometimes you might want to, you know, have a brown juice here and there. But at the same time, it's all about moderation. And, And we all know that I say at a certain age, and let's call that age 18, we all, without a doubt, legally know better from right or wrong and what will benefit us and won't and what will not benefit us. Amen. And we can't just sit there and be like, you know what? I want to lose weight. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pray to God to lose weight. <laughs> and then all we do is sit down on our couch, eat bonbons, throw back some brown juice and be like, I don't feel like working out today. Then tomorrow we do one jumping jack, sit down and be like, God, look, look at the work I'm putting in. Nah, nah. And, and again, it's both a sprint and a marathon. Mm-hmm. So just because you did something for a week, for a week, does not mean that you're actually putting in work. That's the start of the work that you have to put in. You have to keep it going. They say it takes, what, about 21 days to, to start a habit or to form a habit? Like, you have to at least put that in yeah, so it can become part of your routine. Absolutely. You need to be diligent and that that needs to be a, you know, for lack of better words, a, a religion of self, not that you're worshiping yourself or anything ridiculous like that. But keep these tenets, keep, keep that covenant with yourself, with your family, be be purposeful, be diligent in what you do. And like you're saying, just be conscious, being consciously aware of who you are, because if you don't understand your value and other people are telling you your values less than you're going to believe those other people. Amen to that. And I think one of the things that I really, really, really appreciated about Malcolm X, and he was taken from us way too soon, mm. would have been his 95th birthday today, his wow. 95th, taken from us way too soon, right? Um, he really was getting to a place where he was becoming more and more of an independent thinker whose mind views and perspectives were influenced by all of his experiences. And at the end of the day, I really love him as a figure because he embodies the story of redemption. Mm. And it's a story that we often don't see. You have this person who came from a terrible, uh, like a terrible background of traumatic, traumatic, having his father killed, right? Being torn apart from his mother, his mother going to a mental institution, 
you know, going through foster system, right? Being told that he should only want to be a, 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 a garbage man and nothing else. He can't be a lawyer, right? From his teacher, Mr. Ostrowski, I think that was his name, his name. I think that was his name. You have all that, right? You get him into being a criminal, running and running and doing all these things, then going to prison, being reformed, coming out of prison, and actually being a leader of the nation of Islam, et cetera, to the point where he started to found his own things, have his own following, to the point he was getting too big for the nation, right? right? So you have, you have the story of redemption. And often, we don't like to, and when I say we, I mean mainstream media doesn't like to portray a person who has literally, forget Drake, Malcolm X started from the bottom, then came here. Yes. Like, he was there. You know what I mean? So it's like, when you think about that, you think about that story, you think about the power of that story, about what you can become, regardless of your circumstances. If you put in a little sweat equity, that's an important story to tell. And how you can be an independent thinker and how you can be a person who really changed the lives of people across all backgrounds, all religions, all creeds is one that's important. And that's why it's often not told that we have to make sure we continue to tell it. Absolutely. I think you you're aware that one of my favorite terms ever is intellectual sovereignty. We all have the ability to choose whatever we want to do. And once we see people like Malcolm or Martin and anyone else of that of that realm, right, of that ethos, when we see that, when we see these charismatic leaders speaking facts plainly and going out on the record, being public faces and doing all these things, it gives hope and encouragement and empowers a lot of people, which is why usually they unfortunately end up as martyrs because we all know that that's not something they want to become a trend. They would rather have us uh, doing trends that would end up on World Star. World Star, TikTok, Instagram, do it for the vine, whatever the case may be, right? But not actually do it for self, do it for the community. How about we get one of those TikToks going viral? Let's get a, a black startup challenge. Let's mm. do some black ownership TikToks out here. You know what I mean? Hashtag. So, um, let's, let's, let's think about that. But yeah, man, I think that it's, it's, it's incumbent upon us because, again, like we were talking about last time, we got to save ourselves. We can't wait for someone else to come save us. Um, and it's important for us to pour into ourselves. Don't feel guilty studying yourself. Um, if you know anything about uh, racial and ethnic identity development, uh, I would encourage you to take a look at Dr. Uh, Cross, uh, William, William Cross, um, Cross's um, uh, model of negrescence, where it talks about how you go to different stages of uh, racial identity development. Um, it's also published in Dr. Beverly Tatum's book, Why Are the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Wow. Um, I would encourage people to take a look at those things so we can understand all the things we've been through the different stages of our racial development, when we became a little bit more conscious of who we are, when we became a little bit more conscious of our race um, and all the implications of all the things attached to that. Um, I would encourage people to start there. Make it a point, not just in Black History Month, make it a point to read from Black authors about Black people or read from Black authors about white people, whatever the case may be. I'm at the space where everything that I'm looking for, all the knowledge I'm looking to gain, I'm in a space where I'm only looking at it through a black lens. I know that the black lens is not the only one that exists, but all the information, new and old, I want it from a black lens. And then I could branch out from there. But that's where I'm starting. Because again, I can only imagine if I started from that space when I was younger, where I would be now in terms of my intellect, in terms of the things that I know. I have so much catching up to do. I have so much conditioning to do. We all do. Um, so that's why, again, like I said, I got my Black Power bookshelf, take things off, read, take a look, listen to some stuff on YouTube. We have to take advantage of all this time that we have right now 
Um, and it doesn't mean doing the most. It means doing what you can. Absolutely. And it's just really pre-programming your mind from being in the matrix your entire life, essentially. So just accepting what was presented to you as the gospel. When we all know that we again, it's like we all know that the government isn't always truthful with us or political leaders or even people on television in the media. However, our actions would would illustrate that we actually do believe them and take it as gospel. Because our, for, for lack of better words, your actions always define your thoughts and beliefs, from, at least from my perspective. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think to honor Malcolm, um, one of the things that we should or several things that we should we should strive to be is uh, unafraid, mm. unbossed and unbought. Nice. And then if I could throw another one in there, unapologetically black. You yep. don't need permission to be black. Or proud about that. Yes. Yes. Like you, you don't you do not you do not need permission. So I actually had a very introspective question for you, you know, just bringing out the Aquarian in you. So yeah. it, in the best case scenario, what does black nationalism look like in America? Hmm. Um so one of my colleagues and I uh, we have presented at a number of different conferences, and we're looking to present at the People of Color Conference this year. Um, and what we're presenting on is we started an affinity group for black boys in the fourth grade. Um, so boys who identify as black, African-American, um, in the fourth grade. Uh, and what we do is almost like a rites of passage. Hmm. Um, uh, but the name of our presentation, it talks about the work that we do with them, but it's entitled, It Takes a Village. Uh, and let's talk about cultivating black brilliance and resilience um, and unapologetic black boy joy at predominantly white institutions. Now, the reason why I bring that up, you ask what does black nationalism look like? Uh, that old adage of it takes a village to raise a child, I completely agree with it. However, what we, what we su- submit in that proposal and in our presentation is that sometimes we first must create that village. Right. And I think that we cannot assume that that village is created. We've had villages like that that were destroyed. Talk about Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? We've had places in Harlem where it's not getting as much funding or they had to be shut down, like the like the Mart on 125th Street. Um, you have all these institutions and things that are getting washed away or whitewashed, right? Um, so I think black nationalism for me is to first come into a state of black consciousness, understanding that no matter what our walks of life are, we're all connected in one way, shape or form, particularly in the struggle. Um, and like Malcolm said, we don't catch hell on this earth because we're Christian, because we're Muslim, mm. because we're gay, because we're straight, because we have one leg or we have two legs. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> we catch hell on this earth because we're black. So the minute we realize that, that we didn't put this problem here, we understand our race is a social construct that has real implications, right? Once we realize that the social currency usually is white and the real currency, which is green, usually doesn't get into black hands, we have to ask ourselves, how do we form a community, a village, in which we can raise our children to be that generation that's going to take us to the next level and make our ancestors proud. So for me, 
it's about not being so neighborhood centered. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, we always rep our block. You know, I'm from this block. I'm from Harlem. I'm from this. Like, yeah, but there's people who are just like you who are starving and trained. Right. How you're going to connect and share your struggles and then actually grow from that and build on that? How are you going to connect with people in Oakland? How are you yeah. going to do business with each other? Instead of Amazon priming certain things, how about you use some of that snail mail, send, send a book to your brother over there. Figure it out, work it out, use the technology. So it's really about, for me, black nationalism is creating a village and creating a consciousness where we see each other as an interconnected place. It's just really, it's practicing the term Ubuntu, which mm. is I am because we are, ah. and we are because I am. That's what it is. I like that a lot. And it does remind me of what I really want to do, which is to build Wakanda. I feel like those are the type of questions that are necessary in order to make some something beautiful like that happen. You need to have, like you said, you need to have a united front. You need to bring everyone together. And you kind of also uh, have to, as I put on my new uh, COVID-19 mask here, <laughs> you kind of have to embody, you know, some things that may make people uncomfortable so you you do have to think about people as a whole and like you said you can't just think about yourself because again as millennials we're raised to be incredibly narcissistic and then let's say society and culture just puts gasoline on that let's say that the uh, pre-programming you're absolutely right and i think uh my wife and i we were listening to a sermon this past sunday and the pastor was talking about the whole notion of putting on a mask right? Mm. in COVID-19. And it was like, you putting on a mask is not about you. It's really about protecting others. Yes. It's really about others, acknowledging others, acknowledging your impact on others. So in order for us to be black nationalists or have any type of a black nationalist identity or be pro-black in any way is to see someone else. First, we have to see ourselves in the mirror, love ourselves, know ourselves, defend ourselves, but also think about our neighbor and also love them, Mm -hmm. know them, defend them. And if we can all adopt that philosophy and identity, that's how we get to that national piece. We have a lot of local spots. We have a lot of silos, but that national piece hasn't really happened yet. It's true. And it, it reminds me of how, you know, people in our parents' generation talking about, let's say, truly illustrating the it takes a village concept. So back in the day when they were growing up, if, you know, if, if one of your neighbors saw that you weren't doing what you're supposed to be doing, they would actually come and regulate. They're not going to wait for your mom to come home or your dad to come home. Yo, you know better. Get over here. You're not supposed to be doing that. You're not you know, you're not supposed to be hanging with people who doing all that knucklehead stuff over there. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And you got that situation where people used to police the block, like you had your own people policing the block. There's some parents who want to police their own kids. Right. They're afraid of their kids. Yes. And then they send them to the schools that I work at, and I want to slap them. <laughs> no, but all I'm saying is, you know, what do you, what do you think about what parents are not doing? Yes. And I hope in this moment where they're quarantined, they also parenting. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And I keep thinking about. What's going to happen when everything goes back to normal? Are we just going to forget about it? Like how, like how Malcolm said, or are we going to actually see a, 
let's say a, a polar shift in the in the consciousness is it is actually going to is all seeing all the police brutality and then so you can have police brutality one day but then you can have a black on black murder the other day so it's just like eventually are these things going to like snap you out of it and be like okay i need to take a step back and be like wait a minute this isn't helping anyone let alone our people we already know that certain groups of people aren't going to do us any favors and they'll actually go out of their way to make it even more difficult than what it is just to keep us in this situation. Mm -hmm. Well, to quote uh, Cornell West, Dr. Cornell West, he was uh, given a, a speech at some point and he was talking about, someone had asked him a question about the future, et cetera. And he said, history tells me not to be optimistic. So I am not optimistic about the future. However, I am hopeful. Mm. I do have hope. Um, so those are the words that he shared. And I, and I agree with that. Am I optimistic? No, history tells me that, guess what? This stuff will continue to happen because it has been. Right. Like we sitting here talking about a speech that happened in 1964. And we were born 24 years later. Right. You feel me? So it's like, okay, um, when is this going to happen then? So am I optimistic? No. Am I hopeful? Yes. But again, we have to follow some things to have a, a, a complete paradigm shift. Uh, and that's when we can really start to see even more change on right. a national level. And as uh, I know, as Roland Martin often talks about, how do we take this moment and turn it into a movement? That's what we need to think about. Yeah, because. Again, like you said, I'm I, I would say I'm more optimistic than most but still have to be realistic. So I feel like words like Malcolm for a lot of our people will fall on deaf ears and they mm -hmm. would rather listen to, to the futures of the world. Anyone else who's, you know, glorifying, you know, street life, you know, and now we have the, the whole, let's say the junkie movement where everyone's glorifying the use of drugs. So, so that's, yeah. So that's the question. The question is this, if they're not getting it at school mm -hmm. and they're not listening to it or reading it themselves, where are they going to get it from? So again, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we put, and I'm not, I'm, don't get it twisted. I'm not putting any blame or any judgment on anyone. What I'm saying is in a, just in addition to mm -hmm. that PS4 you put in their hand, in addition to those Jordans you put on their feet, Give them a book by Malcolm. Give them a book by Sojourner Truth or a speech of Sojourner Truth. Give them a Bell Hooks book. Give them a book by Imani Perry. Give them a book from Dr. Cornell West. Give them a book from Michael Eric Dyson. Right? And, so, yep, and, excuse me, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, just, to, just to add on to your point, and you can't play the PS4 or wear the Jordans until you complete the book. And give, and give a summary. But I, I apologize. Please continue, sir. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Talk about it. Because, again, like we, we, there comes a conversation where we start to talk about culture. We start to talk about respectability of politics. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not really into that. I'm not interested because I'm not going to judge anybody. We, we all have different choices. We have different lives. We come from different backgrounds, etc. What I'm saying is, where are our priorities? Mm -hmm. um, there, I enjoy gifts just like the next person. If somebody was to gift me a bottle of brown juice, I'd be happy. But no lie, no BS, or as the kids would say, no cap. <laughs> if someone gave me a new book, I'm over the moon. 
Nice. So when are we going to get to that place where we get just as excited, if not more excited, about getting a new book that's going to give us some new information that we can go and consume than us just getting the material things, the things that will only last for certain seasons, where a book will last a lifetime, particularly if you build a Black Power bookshelf like me. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, and I'm actually thinking of some mechanisms for technology because probably that book will probably be on a on a tablet or an iPad. And imagine if you had a an app like just like how most um, uh, devices have a a child mode or kid mode, kid friendly mode. Perhaps in that mode, before you can get to the games, you got to read a chapter of the book. Then it'll unlock everything else. Then you can have fun with that. You, you know, little things like that. That's genius. You know why that's genius? And you better you better find that and patent it and trademark it because as we think about the education landscape that's shifting, as we think about distance learning and online learning, as you think about the fact that, guess what? Interscholastic sports might not be the same. Mm. They might not be the same. So how can you compete? You think about gaming. People are already involved in gaming. If you set something up like that, ooh, Make it happen, so it's true, and and I think it goes in line with the idea, because again, I I went to a JCC, a Jewish community center, and I do see a lot of similarities with our our people being, you know, having atrocities committed in the past, being slaves in the past, and whatnot at different periods of history, and just people generally going out of our going out of their ways to make our lives miserable. And at the same time, I look at their community and how strongly knit it is. I'm just imagining like, wow, if we could do something like that with, within our own. So imagine if at every, let's say, 13 birthday or 14 or 15, whatever age we want to do. And at that age, they become and they, they we actually look at them as an adult. OK, you're going to become a, a young man. You're going to become a young lady. So you have different different. Uh, let's say you view yourself in a different way, in a more a more serious way. And imagine if we actually have a program that gets kids before they finish high school to create a business with other kids, like have be business owners before going to college. So now you're going to college with the purposes of scaling your own business that you've already created. That's beautiful. And I think we need to teach entrepreneurship more, more often, particularly those folks who have gotten to a place where they're financially capable of doing so. There's no reason. I mean, there's there's no coincidence mm -hmm. that many of those who start businesses are white men. There's no coincidence because, again, a lot of them have the financial capital. And if they don't succeed, they have places that they can go back to. They have money that can help them to like infuse their business. They have seed funders and angel investors. They're able to get loans from banks more readily than we can. So there's no re there's there's no coincidence about that. However, just having that mindset to help people hustle and understand the game and become entrepreneurs, particularly when they get resources, that's great. And then additionally, thinking about crowdfunding, mm. like if you have an idea that's worth investing in and you believe in it, don't be afraid to ask for money and get it crowdfunded because folks will spend money on a number of different things. So if you have an idea, you got to be bold enough and brave enough to have your 30 second elevator pitch. Go out there and say what it is, be bold, go with it, and then see if people can come and back you up. And I think that's what we need to be in the, the habit of doing. I know one of the pastors that we often uh, listen to when we go to church, they talk about the whole notion of tithing. He says sometimes tithing is not to the church. 
Sometimes tithing, your 10% that you got to give back to God is doing ministry elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's putting it in the hand of a college student who just came home, who might need that. Sometimes it's buying a book for your niece or your nephew. Sometimes it's helping pay someone's tuition. Sometimes it's just bringing groceries to your neighbor. So thinking about how we can use that, what God has called us to do, not in the traditional sense all the time, but in spaces where we're still doing our part and making our positive contribution. It's true. And I definitely agree with Peter's point. We do need to create. And I thousand percent agree with your point. We actually need that mentorship because the reason why, let's say, people of Caucasian descent are more likely to become business owners and successful is because they have people paying it forward for them. They have a bunch of entrepreneurs and mentors. They have mastermind groups. Could you imagine? Could you just imagine all the intellectual ingenuity of, let's say, people in the dope game who understand finance and, let's say, corporate structure? And imagine if they made a, a mastermind group and, and the whole purpose was to make legal money with that type of ingenuity. So imagine the type, and again, I know this isn't your favorite person, but imagine the amount of Jay-Z's that you would have in terms of industry. Listen, I, I, think, I think that would be phenomenal. And I think that is the wave and that's what we need to be about. Uh, we need to make sure that we are applauding folks for all the right reasons. Um, we need to make sure that we are raising expectations mm. because there's a plenty of times where people say that, oh, there's not, that's not much expected from me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to live to past 25. We need to raise expectations and make them very clear about what it is that we expect from people. I do that with my students all the time. Don't come at me with no nonsense about <laughs> I can't do. Can't you help me? Did you try yourself? Did you try it first? Did you look it up? Did you research? Do that first. And then if you don't do it, figure something else out. And then after that, come see me. So again, it's about building resilience. Folks are already resilient. We're resilient people. But it's about building that resilience. Folks keep talking about grit. I know Angela Duckworth had a publication, wrote a book about grit. We've been gritty since we get here. Like gritty is in our DNA, right? So when we talk about being gritty or exhibiting grit, we got that. When we talk about resilience, We've been that. So how do we use what we have to make sure that we could level the playing field? And then once we level the playing field, just rise above it. It's true. And it all comes down to for people understanding what they're capable of. So, again, and I'm sure this happens to you a lot, as it does for me. And as an Aquarian, it is literally at the top of the list for a pet peeve. If you come to me and ask for help and it is it is incredibly obvious that you didn't put any effort into going and looking for that solution yourself. And I've become your, your savior in that moment or essentially enabling you to be mentally lazy and not doing any research. I, I feel like I have a six, six sense for that now. I, nah, my name is in Google. Go, go figure it out yourself. Number one. Number two, also remember that all technology is reverse engineered from nature. So the whole aspect of Google search and files and on your computers and whatnot, that's reverse engineered from your brain. Your brain does that automatically. They synthesize that. So instead of going to Google, actually think about it. Be introspective. Okay, put, put a bunch of facts together and come up with a hypothesis and then test it out. I agree with you in the sense of, you know, um, 
I'm only willing to help those who are willing to help themselves. Um, there, it also reminds me of people who have philosophies and ideologies who I want to call them like the um, Applejack's philosophy. We eat what we like, you know what I mean? Like, okay, but why do you like it? Are the Applejacks sweet? Are they savory? Do they not get soggy and milk? We eat what we like. No, why do you eat? So I need people not to have lazy arguments. I need people to understand why they need help, why they're asking for help, why they need the help because they were, did they, did they look to get help elsewhere? Did they actually try to put in some sweat equity to do it themselves? Or are they just being lazy and looking for a handout as opposed to a hand up? There's a difference. There's a difference. So I'm not really about handouts because a handout is different from charity. Charity is love. Handout is different from charity. I'm about hand ups. How can I give you a hand up? And a hand up means that you've already been using a hand yourself to do something in that process. And if you don't see that, I'm going to ask you to do that first. I'm going to push you to do that first. Then we can talk. Absolutely. And it's like the whole metaphor of of you're hanging off a cliff and someone else is reaching up and helping you up. Like that's that's exactly what we want to do. But some people are, let's say, like like how you're saying, they're too lazy to see that there's a step beneath them that they can actually push themselves up and then come to our level on their own. So you, you really have to be aware of what you're capable of and you're capable of a lot more than what you've been led to believe. And, that, and you know what? And that reminds me of one of the other um, um, post runner commandments that I had suggested and put forth, which was after this time, I will use my resources and my time efficiently and wisely. Yes. Like we have so much, we have so much, even those who have very little have so much. If you have breath in your body, that alone should get you excited. So don't waste a day. Don't waste a day. It's true. And at this moment in time, there are so many different avenues and resources for you to not only make your dreams a reality, but you can actually systematically plot it out and then go make it happen. Real rap, real rap. And again, in this day and age of all the technology that we have, we got folks who might not have um, a lot of money, but there are chances are they might have a phone, have a computer in their hand. And sometimes that's all you need, whether you can get a hotspot, whether you can get some data, um, there is a lot of stuff that you can do. Some of these students that I know, they are so talented. They want to become YouTubers and some of them will become YouTubers. Some of them are great in terms of video design. Um, but I think what we need to do is not only train our children up in the right way, but also nurture their gifts, see their talents and pour into them. Um, don't push them into a direction that you want them to go into because you think that's the best direction for them. Like actually nurture the gifts that you see that are God given and pour into those and just make sure that we're supporting what we can support, that we see people other than ourselves uh, and make sure that we're leaving this, this earth better than how we found it, better than how we inhabited it, particularly within our families and particularly within our communities. Absolutely, and I feel like that's paramount to facilitate progress. Because again, I would say progress for the sake of progress. For me, that's that's just like the the collectivism that we we see every single day. So you really have to have a specific idea in mind of what you want to do, 
and then align yourself with people who are on that same path as well. And the thing is, when you're chasing after your passion and after your purpose, you're going to find those people anyway. 100%. 100%. I definitely agree. Um, I would encourage people to uh, make it a, a, a priority today, if possible, to go into YouTube, if you can, to listen to a speech from Brother Malcolm, um, Ballad of the Bullet, or any other of his speeches. Um, I would also encourage people um, to start reading a book a month, if possible, one that you would not have read in school, one that probably was hidden from you, uh, one that you haven't heard of before. Hit me up if you want recommendations, I got plenty. Um, but it's time for us to start pouring into ourselves. I was joking on the Brown Juice Barbershop, um, I, not joking because I was I was dead serious, um, but talking about how this is, I'm calling this time my uh, black sabbatical. And I'm really taking a break from white establishments, um, predominantly white institutions, although I'm still working at them. You know, I'm, I'm doing what I need to do there, but I'm showing up unapologetically black um, from my home. Um, and I'm really pouring into myself. I'm thinking about the things I want to think about through the lens of which I want to think about. I'm using the language I want to use. I'm talking the way I want to talk. I'm walking the way I want to walk. I mean, I did that anyway, but it just feels better. It feels better because it feels real. And it feels like, again, this separation has been good to me. I can't complain. Yeah, it's true. I mean, for me, this has been a great time just to have more time, essentially. I mean, less less distractions and more ability to, like how you said, to be introspective and be purposeful and, you know, diligent with what you're trying to do and just honing in on that. It's been it's been a lot of fun. And I hope everyone out there is also taking the same opportunity as well, because eventually, even though let's say the world may not be exactly the same as it was before Corona, eventually there will be some normalcy as we see how states are opening up people are clamoring to get outside especially during the summer so that normalcy will come back and then you're going to essentially be back on that hamster wheel just spinning your wheels doing whatever it takes to maintain the status quo mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we need to use this time to get right whatever that means for you use this time to get right absolutely and guys thank you once again for watching mikhail thank you once again for joining us thank you and guys, thank you once again. And please, if we have any entrepreneurs in the in the comments, please shout out your business. We definitely want to have some networking here between, you know, everyone who's trying to, you know, do what we're what we're talking about and what, what Malcolm was was preaching. Right on, right on. And all right, guys, have a great day and speak to you guys soon. Peace. Get your money, I'm not gonna you repeat what they created and get power to hate. But worst of all, we disappoint all the great. Black lives matter, black lives matter. Yeah, hey. Black lives matter, black lives matter. Yeah, hey, hey.